And uh, with that, we want to get into this morning's text. And uh, so if you could turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 8, uh, or sorry, chapter 9, verse 18. Uh, I'm going to pray and invite you to pray with me as you turn there. Father God, we thank you for being a good God. You are our creator. You created the world for our good and for your glory. We, we thank you that you send your spirit to um, make real and tangible in our hearts um, the truth of who you are and that you bring it to perfection in our lives. So as we focus in on the word of your son, Jesus, we ask your spirit to help us not only understand it, but um, experience uh, the reality of it and to trust you uh, with all that you have to say this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Well, today is Palm Sunday. Uh, it is the day that remembers Jesus Christ riding into Jerusalem. I can't repeat that anywhere near as cute as our kids did earlier. I have no chance of being that cute. But um, it is the day that Israel, Jerusalem in specific, hailed Jesus as the king as he rode into Jerusalem. And uh, much, uh, much longer before that event... Um, there, was a, there was another event, the event we'll read about today, where Jesus asks his disciples who, he, who they say he is, and, and Peter declares that he's in fact the king, and Jesus will then define exactly what kind of king he would be. And so uh, what we're going to see today is that Jesus' understanding of the kind of king he is is very different than the, the understanding of the crowds that welcomed him that Palm Sunday. And so we're going to jump right into the text this morning and, uh, and hear this word. So Luke chapter 9, verse 18, read along with me. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? He replied, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell anyone, and he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me in my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here today will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Well, this is God's word, and 
this morning is our last message in the One series. So we're we're going to take a break from Luke for a couple of weeks, and after Easter, we're going to kind of explore this theme of wrestling with God through you know, believing God with big questions, and it's going to be, uh, I think, a really timely series for us, but we're going to take a couple month break from Luke, and we've been in it now for some time, like a year and a half or so, and so um, if you're going to understand any one passage of scripture, it's kind of best to understand it in light of its context. So this morning I thought I'd start by zooming out a bit and giving you a three minute version of the entire book of Luke. You cool with that? All right, so let's do that. Um, So remember that Luke is a two-volume work. It is actually Luke-Acts, okay? So it's one work by one author, two volumes. And it centers on a journey from the ends of the earth toward Jerusalem and then from Jerusalem back out into the ends of the earth. So um, the way this works is we start with some Old Testament themes that are... are, hanging out there in Luke chapter 1 through 4. It starts with an old Jewish couple that can't have babies and they're hanging at the temple and, uh, and it's supposed to remind us of the Old Testament stories of some other old couples who can't have babies and they bring, God, uh, they bring themselves to the temple and we're supposed to remember Hannah who has Samuel who's this prophet who is a forerunner to King David. And so Old Testament is finding its continuation and culmination here in the beginning of Luke. So Luke's picking up where Israel's story has left off. And then you get into chapters 4 through 9. In chapter 4, Jesus comes into his hometown synagogue and launches his public ministry with this sermon from Isaiah 61 that says, Today, uh, this is fulfilled in your hearing. And it was this passage that said, The Spirit of Yahweh is on me, has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, freedom to the captive. Right, And so he launches this ministry in chapters 4 through 9 where we see Jesus all throughout the region of Galilee showing himself to be the one who is the Messiah. He, there's all these controversies that break out over Jesus because he's doing and saying things that really only belong to someone whose identity is equal with God. And then in 9 through 19, we get this turn where he resolutely sets out for Jerusalem and it's this 10 chapter slog to Jerusalem. And along the way, he's teaching and instructing, and there's more teachings and parables all throughout where he warns the disciples six times, I'm going to suffer and die. And sure enough, he hits Jerusalem, and it's there where he dies. And then in 24 and Acts 1, you get this picture of the resurrected Christ who walks along the road with his disciples, sends his disciples to the ends of the earth. The Spirit of God comes in chapter 2 into his the church, and that's where the gospel is proclaimed in Jerusalem, Judea, and then the ends of the earth. That's the rest of Acts. Now, this section closest to where we are today is the hinge section of the whole book. You see, in the Galilee section, the whole question is, Who is Jesus? What's his identity? And the discovery here at the end of the section is that he is the Messiah. And Peter's confession is this hinge moment. And because of that confession, we turn then to the journey section where we ask the question, what does it mean to be the Messiah's people? What does it mean to actually follow him? And so 9 through 19 is where we learn that Jesus is a suffering Messiah. In fact, Jesus tells his disciples, don't say to anyone that I am the Messiah because if you do, you will screw it up for all of us. 
Because you don't understand yet what it means for me to be the Messiah. If you go and tell, you'll mess it up because you have to follow me and come on a journey with me for the next 10 chapters to figure out what kind of Messiah I am. And so we'll see in the next time we pick up in Luke, we'll see this event called the Transfiguration where Jesus is kind of on this mountain and starts glowing. We see him in his glory and the disciples realize they have much to learn. And the Father says from heaven, this is my son, listen to him. And then you get 10 chapters of teaching. So that is the context. That's Luke in about four and a half minutes. Um, So... Are you still with me? Okay, great. So, that's our brief flyby of Luke, and this passage that we're in today is the hinge of the whole book, okay? And so everything's going to turn on this confession. And what we're going to find as we dive into the passage this morning is a profound discovery of who Jesus is, what his identity is, which leads to a new priority, which is built on a changed identity, on all of this flows from understanding God's loving mercy. So I'll explain all that as we go. So, dive in with me. Um, Luke begins this story in verse 18. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? Remember, Jesus had set out with his disciples earlier in the chapter, uh, in fact, at the beginning of the chapter, to get alone, to pray together, and he got interrupted by 5,000 guys who wanted to come and make him a king by force, and he feeds them some pancakes and sardines, and he multiplies uh, God's provision, showing himself to be essentially uh, this God who feeds his people. And now, at this point in the story, Jesus is finally getting that little personal retreat with his disciples where they can go and pray. And that's where he says, who do the crowds say that I am? Now, the crowds are the people who have been Checking Jesus out. They've been looking in from the outside, trying to figure out who is he, but they have not yet decided to follow him. And there's certainly many opinions about Jesus. There were then and there are now. But no matter who you are, it's really hard to avoid an opinion about Jesus. He's the figure who seems to always get a reaction from us. There isn't really a neutral ground. It's he is who he says he is, or he isn't, or he's some kind of... You, you have an opinion. The crowds have an opinion. Now Jesus then turns to his disciples and he asks the key question and says, but what about you? What about you? Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? You see, he presses in here because Jesus was not and is not content with some distant, abstract opinions or just observations about himself. See, he presses in towards what's very personal. He, he gets kind of uncomfortable here. See, he knows this about ourselves, that opinions formed in a crowd are a totally different thing than convictions owned by a heart. And he didn't come to increase God's approval ratings in the crowd. He came to get personal, relational, move towards the heart of each person. And so Peter speaks up for the whole group, as he often does, and declares boldly, you are God's Messiah. 
You're God's Messiah. Now, today, if somebody says that person has a Messiah complex, is this a compliment? No, this is like a this is a, a put down, right? They, they they're really self uh, self involved. They have an overinflated ego. They think it's their gift to the world to fix everybody's problems. But in the first century, when this question was asked and answered by Peter, this notion of being a Messiah had a completely different story. And so what I want to do here is just help ground this answer in the story that Peter answered it from within. Okay, And so the, the, the idea of a Messiah began as far back as Genesis chapter 3 in the garden. Uh, God had created his good world, but there was an evil creature in the world who came along and told a different story to God's good creation. Right? And he said, God can't really be trusted. He's holding out on you. It's best for you to determine what's good. And so when Adam and Eve bought into the lie that God was not trustworthy, evil entered their own hearts and death began to permeate creation. Because the, the, the whole cosmos was disrupted from what it was intended to be. And so God graciously promises that one of Eve's offspring, one of her children, would defeat evil. And there was this poetic promise that her offspring's heel would be bitten by this serpent who represents the chief of evil, but that offspring would destroy its head, that he would be a victor over evil. And so this story of hope for a broken, lost creation starts to ebb and flow and things get worse and then God zeroes his promise in on a family. And that family is Abraham's family. And God promises Abraham that through his offspring, all the nations, even though they had just revolted against him, would in fact be blessed, that he would restore good to his creation. And then it was, this story keeps going, and and person after person jeopardizes this promise until God says, actually, it's going to come through Abraham's grandson, Judah. And he says that Judah will have an offspring who will be a king, and that the scepter of the kingdom will never depart from his hand, that there will be a ruler. And finally, this tribe of Judah after many years, has a son named David. And it's David who is a king after God's own heart, but he also has sin in his life, and he shows us that he isn't that Judah ruler. But God promises David that through David, there will be a king. In 2 Samuel 7, you get the promise to David that there will be a child of David who will be king forever, that he will rule with justice and get Israel and therefore the entire world's story back on track. But over time, people forgot these promises. And so God sent prophets to remind them that there's a coming king who will bring the story of creation back on track. But one particular prophet, Isaiah, gives us a deeper picture of what kind of ruler he will be. There's the songs of the servant of Isaiah, Isaiah 40 through about 60 Two, depending on how you frame that, are the songs that highlight the fact that this suffering servant is going to be a ruler, that the ruler is going to be the one who receives a wound 
for humanity's evil, that, that this ruler will in fact be a servant and will be, his wounds will become the source of the world's healing. And so, this David-like descendant of Abraham who will crush the head of the serpent that the Psalms and prophets say is the anointed of God is exactly what Peter means when he says, you are God's Messiah. He's still tracking. Okay, so that was a lot of story. But here it is. Peter comes along and goes, you're the one who is God's anointed. God's anointed is what Christos in Greek means or Messiah in Hebrew means. It's the anointed king, the one, the one. He's the one that we've been looking for. So when we began this series, it started with John the Baptist saying, are you the one? Because you don't look like him. And then Herod asked the question, uh, who is Jesus? Is he John the Baptist? Come back to haunt me because I did wrong. Is he Elijah? Is he another prophet? And now we come to the end of the section where Peter says on behalf of all the disciples and all who will believe that Jesus is the one to come. He's the Messiah of God, the serpent-crushing victor who is the offspring of Eve, the one who will forgive the world's sins and heal the hurting and rule with justice. So that's what Peter means when he says... Your God's Messiah. But what about you? What about you today? Who do you say that Jesus is? See, this isn't just an opinion, because the thing is, what you and I say about Jesus' identity is actually just as much of a statement about our own heart as it is about Jesus himself. See, it's not just an opinion, but it's also a heart statement. And maybe you're here today and you haven't identified Jesus as anyone or anything more important than anything else in your life. Maybe you're here, you're like the crowds, you're checking him out. You want to observe him. And that's good. But Jesus wants to draw you into something better than good. He wants best. And best is personal. See, Jesus, again, wasn't content with passive and distant observation. Jesus comes to get uncomfortably close to get to our hearts and say, but what about you? What about you? Who do you say that I am? Maybe you're here today and you need a reminder. You need a reminder that that you are simply not the Messiah. Maybe you came in the doors with all the pressure of being one. It's on you to fix this. It's on you to control that. It's on you to save this relationship. And you're here and you've got that on your shoulders. Listen to this text. Listen to Peter's confession and join with him and say, I am not the Messiah. Jesus is. He's the one that can fix it. He's the one that the world can sit on his shoulders. So confess today, if that's you, like, Jesus, you be the Messiah. Sometimes when I'm praying about something that's well outside of my control, I I just come to the Lord and go, hey, God, this is your problem now. Until you tell me to do something else, this one's on you. Because I can't fix it. I don't mean that disrespectfully. It's really a moment of surrender to go, I'm done trying to manage this. I have to trust you to be a king over it. 
Maybe you're here today and you've been getting that kind of feeling in your gut that says, yeah, what about me? I'm like, what, what do I say about Jesus? And maybe you're coming to the conclusion that he's not just a wise giver of advice. He's not a buddy, but he's a savior. That he says he's come to seek and save the lost. And see, to, to grasp the power of who Jesus is, you have to have that category of being lost. To say, you know what, I, I actually need fixing. I, I need a Messiah who can lead my life better than I can. Maybe that's you today. I want to encourage you, actually plead with you, don't leave here today without answering that question, without determining in your heart who Jesus is. And to press into that and tell him today and say, you know, I hadn't thought this about you, but I believe it today. I believe that you are this Messiah and that the hope of the world is on your shoulders. And if that's you, you're in a place where you identify and go, you know what, Jesus is that one. He is the Messiah. Then I want to lead you to the second point this morning because Jesus is going to say a lot about what that means then. What will it mean to identify him as the Messiah? What how will that shape the rest of my life if that's where I'm at? And so, you see, the discovery that Jesus is the Messiah leads now to a new priority. See, Jesus responds to Peter's confession with a warning. Don't tell anyone because I'm not here to have a military and political victory for your nationalistic hopes. In fact, I'm here to suffer and die the rejection of those who should get it, but don't. I'm not the kind of Messiah that you think that I am. In fact, chapters 9 through 19 are going to help define that for us. But because Jesus isn't the kind of Messiah that they think he should be, he tells them to be quiet, that is, until he's crucified and raised. And then he's going to say in Acts 1.18, or actually 1.8, he's going to say, now you've got to give witness to what I've done and all the nations, so go. Right? But because Jesus is the kind of Messiah that he is, he tells his disciples the new way that, that he will reprioritize their entire lives. Look at verse 23 with me. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple, or the ESV says come after me, which is a bit closer, um, Anyone who wants to come after me, anyone who wants to have anything to do with me, that is, he must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Wow, so identifying Jesus as Messiah will mean I no longer call all the shots in my life. It means uh, that I've elected to not be a part of a democracy where I get to negotiate and vote my will But I come under the will of the king and I say, I'm going to trust you and let you shape everything. So you see the the priority that Jesus sets isn't a one-time decision. It's not like a I pray a prayer and now I can kind of just take it easy because I've got my ticket to post-mortem bliss. See, this is a, a new priority and it involves three verbs in this text. Jesus goes on to define, now you say I'm Messiah, let me shape what that means for you. Let me give you an imagination for the kind of life this will mean. And so three verbs are used here by Jesus. The first verbs 
our commitments. And the last verb is a continual choice. The first verb is uh, this real sense of priority around Jesus' agenda over my own. And so to deny myself means that I refuse to have the last word on everything. It's a commitment to lay down my agenda for his agenda. The second commitment is this verb to take up our cross daily. See, bearing a cross in the ancient world wasn't just an inconvenience. It was actually a a symbol of utter rejection and accountability to the authority of Rome. And so for the disciples to bear a cross daily meant to identify with Jesus, a way of saying, I'm prepared to face the same kind of rejection for his sake, and ultimately, and very practically, it's a commitment to live differently than the world, even if it costs me. Let me say that again. Taking up our cross means I'm committed to living differently than the world, even if it costs me. And so both of these commitments... and run totally different than the commitments our world is saying you should make. Would you agree? Like these are, see, our world says life's actually about finding and fulfilling your own agenda. But Jesus' way is a way of committing to laying that agenda down for his. Our, our world says you should get ahead. You should get the advantage even if it hurts someone else. Jesus' way is a commitment to say, I'm going to live out values that disadvantage myself. It costs me for the sake of advantaging the disadvantaged. That I will put myself at a disadvantage for the sake of the community. So that's what biblical righteousness is all about. So these first two commitments aren't really grounded in time. They're just a commitment for all time. But they lead to a continual choice. So a commitment to lay down my agenda, a commitment to walk differently than the world, even if it costs me, leads then to this third verb, which is a continual action. It's a, it's a present tense reality, and it's to follow. It means to allow the personal presence of Jesus and his agenda to shape every word, every thought, every action, every emotion, of every moment, of every part, of every aspect of my life. You see, there's no real biblical Christianity without discipleship. It's not like, you know, hey, I believe in Jesus, so I have the regular Costco membership. But the executive status, that's like for the people who are really serious, want to pay a little extra because they're going to spend more, and uh, they're the disciples. Now, Christianity isn't an agreement with abstract doctrines. It's a personal and relational alignment with the rule of King Jesus. It's allowing Him to live my life, for me to live my life as, it were, as if it were Him and His character and His priorities shaping it. And so, the question this morning is, are there any places in your life and in my life where you're kind of holding on to your own agenda. And you've kind of said, you know, for the time being, I'd like to kind of manage and control this category of my life. I've got my agenda and I want to see it through. And maybe where God's asking you to now deny that agenda, to 
that to say grasping for control because what you're really saying is you can manage life better than I can and I spoke life into existence so I want you to tap into what I have to say. Maybe there's a place where you're resisting the cost of following where you're saying that's too steep a price, Jesus. Will you not just say he's the Messiah? Will you allow him to reshape your priorities? Where does that need to happen for you today? Where does that reshaping of your priorities need to get worked out? You know, maybe it's a relationship that just needs some extra attention. I've been ignoring this. I've been using workarounds, but now it's time to address the real issues. Maybe it's a hurt that needs forgiveness. To allow Jesus' priorities to shape you means to say, I'm going to be done holding on to the hurt has power over this person and it's time to forgive it. Maybe it's a, a schedule that revolves around you right now and your comfort or your success. To allow Jesus to reshape your priorities means to submit the schedule, to look at the calendar and go, where am I allowing God's word to shape my imagination, my heart, my priorities? Where do I make space for others? Where do I make space for God to speak in my life? Maybe there's an attitude that you've allowed to take root and you've got some good justifications for it. But the priorities of Jesus would say, I need you to set that agenda down because I've got an agenda that's going to be better. Let's be honest. Living like this, like it's not always appealing. A lot of times I'm like, ah, I don't really. My agenda felt good. Jesus is saying, look, I'm, I'm Messiah. I've come to defeat evil, heal wounds, and bring about my good creation toward its intended goal. So to be honest, this seems a bit tough, over the top, maybe even fanatical and we want to control things and honestly we, we want to appear good but when it comes to actual change that's pretty hard. You see, our priorities will never change until we grasp the third reality and that's this today, friends. That's The third reality we see here is that Jesus comes to bring a new identity. He says, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it but whoever loses their life for me will save it. See, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? So a a disciple isn't just somebody who sets a new priority, who's like very good, but actually somebody who is very deeply rooted in who Christ is. They find themselves having a new identity. So check this out. Notice the word that Jesus uses here for life. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will save it. That word life, if we were expecting that to just mean your physical life, that this might cost you your life, he, he certainly meant that when he said, take up your cross, that there's a potential for rejection and your life might be lost. But what is he saying here? If, we, if he was talking about your physical life, he would use the word bios, or you get biology. But instead, the word for life here is suke, which is actually where you get psychology, right? talking about your self, your inner sense of your inner life, of who you are as a person. It's talking about 
your identity. So Jesus is saying this. Look, hey, your old way of having an identity, your old way of gaining a sense of self, that has to be over now. See, you have to, in a sense, die to it. And through me, gain it. See, I've come to give you not just a new order, but a new self. You have to have your whole self reconstructed through me and my work so you have a new self and a true self that's grounded in your creator. And so I want to point something out here that's very important. So you can read this really quickly and think, well, this is is about kind of the, the normal Eastern or Western approach to gaining an identity, gaining a self. And see, the Eastern approach is very different than our Western one. The Eastern one is essentially um, lose yourself. Lose yourself. Lose your sense of desire. Lose your sense of being an individual. Become one with all. Let yourself be merged with all like a drop in the ocean. And that is how you gain peace. But Jesus doesn't stop at lose yourself. He says lose yourself to gain yourself. Right? The self doesn't disappear. The self is reconstructed in a relationship with God. But check this out. It isn't the Western way of gaining a self either. And the Western way that we're used to is we say to you, especially right now for you who are teenagers, because this is the time where you're most forming your identity. Some of you guys are still working on it at 40 and 50 and that's keep coming we're going to help you okay but look the the thing the world says is figure out what you want and go get it okay if you really want to have a self you figure out what you want and go get it figure out your deepest desire and go fulfill them but but the challenge of course and i'm going to be straight here is if you do that how do you know which desires to chase if you do that how do you know which ones are actually worthy of a self. You see, uh, how, how do you know which ones to build your life on? Uh, because what happens with in 10 years, you come to idealize something different than you idealize now. You've built your whole decade on a sense of self that you no longer value. So if you idealize success and business, and in 10 years you come to realize I'm relationally bankrupt, what do you do? You have to reconstruct yourself. Or what happens if you idealize family? See, this is what my life is going to be about. But then 10 years goes by and you don't feel like you're getting the care and attention you need. And so you go and you try to find someone who will put you on a pedestal, who will care for you. See, this is no way to build an identity. See, Jesus seems to be saying to all of us, you'll never find yourself by trying to find yourself. Because you can't trust yourself. You'll never get a true self by finding yourself. You're going to have to lose yourself in serving me. See, there's some things that happen as a byproduct of other things. An identity is one of those things. You can't get an identity by choosing to find an identity. You have to chase something bigger than yourself in order to gain an identity as a byproduct. And here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying the ordinary way that you gain a self in this world is by gaining things from the world. So Jesus says, what good is it if a man or woman gains the whole world and yet forfeits or loses their very self? Some people say you're nobody unless you gain a career, unless you gain a spouse, unless you gain kids. You're nobody unless you have money or wealth or status or whatever it is, and then you'll know you're somebody. You'll know who you are then. 
And that means that it gives you a sense of self, a sense of worth, a sense of value, a sense of being set apart. But you're gaining something and gaining a self from that. And Jesus is saying, look, I want you to know that if you are going to gain the whole world, the whole world can't give you a stable self. Because if you try to get an identity by gaining things in the world, whether it's a family or a career or whatever, if you build your identity on anything in this world, it's radically unstable. You'll lose it. And if you lose it, you lose you. And so if you build your identity on anything in this world, you'll never know if you have enough of it and you'll never know if it's secure. And when it's threatened, you'll be angry. And when it disappears, not only will you be unhappy, you won't have you. Are you with me? And so Jesus says to us, if you lose yourself for me, you will save it. You'll save it. Instead of trying to gain a self by gaining things, he says, build everything on me. Build everything on who I am and what I've done. Base your life not on your career, on your father, on your family, or having a nice home, or on anything else but me. And then finally, you'll have a self that you can't lose. You'll have a self that's stable. You'll have a self that's true because it's connected to the one who designed you. Colossians 1 says that all things are held together in Him, Christ. They're created for Him and by Him. So if you want to know who you are, you have to connect to the one who made you. Now, this is not easy or altogether simple, but it's one of the key tasks of every disciple is to ask the question, where am I finding myself? What is it that makes me feel like I have a place and an identity. And so I want to ask you to do something this week. You can completely reject it. You don't have to do it. But I would suggest to you that it would be productive and that it would be to put yourself under a microscope this week. To ask God the question, whether it's in prayer or journaling or in a very specific conversation with somebody who knows you well, and say, what is it that I build my sense of self upon? How does Jesus want to reshape that sense of self around him? Sometimes when I'm anxious, it's a warning sign that I've built a self around what I can control or around the perception of somebody else. When I'm fearful, it's a sense of I've got a self that's not grounded in the good news because his perfect love drives out fear. So where... Is yourself resting? What's holding that together? It's part of the good news of the gospel. He doesn't just want to get you to heaven. He wants heaven to invade your identity. But this whole thing of being a disciple, it's not just having a new priority. It's certainly that. It's not also uh, having a new identity doesn't just happen because we choose to. You have to ground it in something. Think about the Apostle Paul. He says, it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. That's an identity statement. But how does he get there? Because he says, it's Christ who's given himself up for me. You see, in order to have this new identity, you have to have this fourth aspect of of what Jesus is saying here. And that is that our identity and new priority have to be purchased from an understanding of his loving mercy. Here's what I mean. See, the only way this new identity is possible is for you to see and understand what the Messiah has done for you. 
Look with me at this warning passage that Jesus offers his disciples in verse 26. He says, Whoever is ashamed of me, in my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Wow, that sounds kind of harsh, right? Jesus, you're harsh in my vibe. Like, this doesn't feel good. But if you understand it in the context of what he's just said, it makes perfect sense. See, the Son of Man, he says, must suffer many things. He must be rejected by the chief priests and the elders and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And you see, if we fail to identify with Jesus, if we're ashamed of him, what we're really saying is that I refuse to see him identifying with me. You see, it's a way of saying, I reject that he has already stood in my shame for me. You see, he, the gospel says, has endured our rejection. He's suffered for my evil. He's been killed in the place of my own sin. And so the only way that we can begin to see our identity in him is if we believe the message of the gospel that Jesus Christ has taken the broken pieces of my identity and absorbed them into himself and his death. And he's so radically identified with you and I in his own life and death that when we're found in him, our shame's covered, our sin's forgiven. You see, it's a loving mercy. It's a loving mercy that purchases a new identity and that that fosters trust for new priorities. But you and I, friends, have to make it personal. As we know from Jesus' question, he's not content with opinions from a crowd. He's looking for determined convictions of the heart. To say, personally, I embrace what you've done for me Of course, I'm not ashamed of you. You stood in my shame for me. You refused to be ashamed of me even when I was completely rejectable. You've stood for me. You've let your blood flow for me so that I can have the acceptance of the Father. You've experienced the terror of the cross so I can have the power of the Spirit. You've endured the scorn of men so I can have the favor of God. And so... To make it personal means to determine today, I'm going to allow him to be the shaping reality in my life for everything. And we have a chance right now this morning to do that in a very tactile way. We get to move towards the table and say, I want to make this personal. I want to accept again afresh and and remind my heart of what it is that I believe. It's a moment where we take the life and death and resurrection of Jesus and we make it personal, where we remember as a community the loving mercy of Jesus, Him in our place and now ours in His. So as you come this morning, remember that it's His shame that's our, our acceptance. It's His wound that's our healing. It's His condemnation that's our forgiveness. It's His death, it's our life. So go to the table this morning and hold the elements in your hand and we'll take it together as a community in a moment. But as you take them, hold them and take them into yourself. Make it a declaration again to you and to your own heart and to those around you that I'm taking Christ into me because He's taken me 
into himself. I'm taking his priorities into my life. I'm taking his identity into mine. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord God, for your goodness to send your son Jesus in our place, to draw us into the relationship of the triune God, this loving relationship of Father, Son, and Spirit, where we belong in your family and we're sent with your power and closeness and intimacy through your spirit because of the work of Jesus to identify, to redeem. So we come to you and we proclaim the gospel again to our own hearts and to each other and to the world as we receive the bread and the cup. In Jesus' name, amen.